0: Chapter six, part two of Culture and Anarchy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, Culture and Anarchy by Matthew Arnold. Chapter six, part two. A distinguished liberal supporter of Mr. Chambers, in the debate which followed the introduction of the bill, produced a formula of much beauty and neatness for conveying in brief the liberal notions on this head liberty said he is the law of human life and therefore the moment it is ascertained that god's law the book of leviticus does not stop the way man's law the law of liberty asserts its right and makes us free to marry our deceased wife's sister and this exactly falls in with what mr hepworth dixon who may almost be called the colenso of love and marriage such a revolution does he make in our ideas on these matters just as Dr. Colenso does in our ideas on religion, tells us of the notions and proceedings of our kinsmen in America. With that affinity of genius to the Hebrew genius, which we have already noticed, and with the strong belief of our race that liberty is the law of human life, so far as a fixed, perfect and paramount rule of conscience, the Bible does not expressly control it, our American kinsmen go again, Mr. Hepworth Dixon tells us, to their Bible, the mormons to the patriarchs and the old testament brother noyes to st paul and the new and having never before read anything else but their bible they now read their bible over again and make all manner of great discoveries there all these discoveries are favourable to liberty and in this way is satisfied that double craving so characteristic of the philistine and so eminently exemplified in that crowned philistine henry the eighth the craving for forbidden fruit and the craving for legality mr hepworth dixon's eloquent writings give currency over here to these important discoveries so that now as regards love and marriage we seem to be entering with all our sails spread upon what mr hepworth dixon its apostle and evangelist calls a gothic revival but what one of the many newspapers that so greatly admire mr hepworth dixon's lithe and sinewy style and form their own style upon it calls by a yet bolder and more striking figure a great sexual insurrection of our Anglo-Teutonic race. For this end we have to avert our eyes from everything Hellenic and fanciful, and to keep them steadily fixed upon the two cardinal points of the Bible and liberty. And one of those practical operations in which the Liberal Party engage, and in which we are summoned to join them, directs itself entirely, as we have seen, to these cardinal points, and may almost be regarded, perhaps, as a kind of first instalment or public and parliamentary pledge of the great sexual insurrection of our Anglo-Teutonic race. But here, as elsewhere, what we seek is the Philistine's perfection, the development of his best self, not mere liberty for his ordinary self. And we no more allow absolute validity to his stock maxim, liberty is the law of human life, than we allow it to the opposite maxim, which is just as true, renouncement is the law of human life. For we know that the only perfect freedom is, as our religion says, a service not a service to any stock maxim, but an elevation of our best self, and a harmonizing in subordination to this, and to the idea of a perfected humanity, all the multitudinous, turbulent, and blind impulses of our ordinary selves. Now the Philistine's great defect, being a defect in delicacy of perception, to cultivate in him this delicacy, to render it independent of external and mechanical rule, and a law to itself, is what seems to make most for his perfection his true humanity, and his true humanity, and therefore his happiness, appears to lie much more, so far as the relations of love and marriage are concerned, in becoming alive to the finer shades of feeling which arise within these relations, in being able to enter with tact and sympathy into the subtle instinctive propensions and repugnances of the person with whose life his own life is bound up, to make them his own, to direct and govern, in harmony with them the arbitrary range of his personal action, and thus to enlarge his spiritual and intellectual life and liberty, than in remaining insensible to these finer shades of feeling, this delicate sympathy, in giving unchecked range, so far as he can, to his mere personal action, in allowing no limits or government to this except such as a mechanical external law imposes, and in thus really narrowing, for the satisfaction of his ordinary self, his spiritual and intellectual life and liberty. Still more must this be so when his fixed eternal rule, his God's law, is supplied to him from a source which is less fit perhaps to supply final and absolute instructions on this particular topic of love and marriage than on any other relation of human life. Bishop Wilson, who is full of examples of that fruitful Hellenizing within the limits of Hebraism itself, of that renewing of the stiff and stark notions of Hebraism, by turning upon them a stream of fresh thought and consciousness, which we have already noticed in st paul bishop wilson gives an admirable lesson to rigid hebraizers like mr chambers asking themselves does god's law that is the book of leviticus forbid us to marry our wife's sister does god's law that is again the book of leviticus allow us to marry our wife's sister when he says christian duties are founded on reason not on the sovereign authority of god commanding what he pleases God cannot command us what is not fit to be believed or done, all his commands being founded in the necessities of our nature, and, immense as is our debt to the Hebrew race and its genius, incomparable as is its authority on certain profoundly important sides of our human nature, worthy as it is to be described as having uttered, for those sides, the voice of the deepest necessities of our nature, the statutes of the divine and eternal order of things, the law of God who that is not manacled and hoodwinked by his hebraism can believe that as to love and marriage our reason and the necessities of our humanity have their true sufficient and divine law expressed for them by the voice of any oriental and polygamous nation like the hebrews who i say will believe when he really considers the matter that where the feminine nature the feminine ideal and our relations to them are brought into question the delicate and apprehensive genius of the indo-european race the race which invented the Muses and chivalry and the Madonna, is to find its last word on this question in the institutions of a Semitic people whose wisest king had seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines. If here again, therefore, we seem to minister better to the diseased spirit of our time by leading it to think about the operation our liberal friends have in hand than by lending a hand to this operation ourselves, let us see, before we dismiss from our view the practical operations of our liberal friends, whether the same thing does not hold good, as to their celebrated industrial and economical labours also. Their great work of this kind is, of course, their free trade policy. This policy, as having enabled the poor man to eat untaxed bread, and as having wonderfully augmented trade, we are accustomed to speak of with a kind of solemnity. It is chiefly on their having been our leaders in this policy, that Mr. Bright founds for himself, and his friends, the claim, so often asserted by him, to be considered guides of the blind teachers of the ignorant, benefactors slowly and laboriously developing, in the conservative party and in the country, that which Mr. Bright is fond of calling, the growth of intelligence, the object, as is well known, of all the friends of culture also, and the great end and aim of the culture that we preach. Now having first saluted free trade and its doctors with all respect, let us see whether even here, too, our liberal friends do not pursue their operations in a mechanical way without reference to any firm intelligible law of things, to human life as a whole and human happiness, and whether it is not more for our good at this particular moment at any rate, if, instead of worshipping free trade with them hebraistically, as a kind of fetish, and helping them to pursue it as an end in and for itself, we turn the free stream of our thought upon their treatment of it, and see how this is related to the intelligible law of human life, and to national well-being and happiness in short suppose we hellenize a little with free trade as we hellenized with the real estate intestacy bill and with the disestablishment of the irish church by the power of the nonconformist antipathy to religious establishments and endowments and see whether what our reprovers beautifully call ministering to the diseased spirit of our time is best done by the hellenizing method of proceeding or by the other but first let us understand how the policy of free trade really shapes itself for our liberal friends and how they practically employ it as an instrument of national happiness and salvation. For, as we said that it seemed clearly right to prevent the church property of Ireland from being all taken for the benefit of the church of a small minority, so it seems clearly right that the poor man should eat untaxed bread, and generally, that restrictions and regulations which, for the supposed benefit of some particular person or class of persons, make the price of things artificially high here, or artificially low there, and interfere with the natural flow of trade and commerce, should be done away with. But in the policy of our liberal friends, free trade means more than this, and especially valued as a stimulant to the production of wealth, as they call it, and to the increase of the trade, business, and population of the country. We have already seen how these things, trade, business, and population, are mechanically pursued by us as ends precious in themselves, and are worshipped as what we call fetishes. And Mr. Bright, I have already said when he wishes to give the working class a true sense of what makes glory and greatness, tells it to look at the cities it has built, the railroads it has made, the manufactures it has produced. So to this idea of glory and greatness, the free trade which our liberal friends extol so solemnly and devoutly has served, to the increase of trade, business, and population, and for this it is prized. Therefore the untaxing of the poor man's bread has, with this view of national happiness, been used not so much to make the existing poor man's bread cheaper or more abundant, but rather to create more poor men to eat it. So that we cannot precisely say that we have fewer poor men than we had before free trade, but we can say with truth that we have many more centres of industry, as they are called, and much more business, population, and manufactures, and if we are sometimes a little troubled by our multitude of poor men, yet we know the increase of manufactures and population to be such a salutary thing in itself and our free trade policy begets such an admirable movement creating fresh centres of industry and fresh poor men here while we were thinking about our poor men there that we are quite dazzled and borne away and more and more industrial movement is called for and our social progress seems to become one triumphant and enjoyable course of what is sometimes called vulgarly outrunning the constable if however taking some other criterion of man's well-being than the cities he has built and the manufactures he has produced We persist in thinking that our social progress would be happier, if there were not so many of us so very poor, and in busying ourselves with notions of in some way or other adjusting the poor man and business one to the other, and not multiplying the one and the other mechanically and blindly, then our liberal friends, the appointed doctors of free trade, take us up very sharply. Art is long, says the Times, and life is short. For the most part we settle things first, and understand them afterwards. Let us have as few theories as possible. What is wanted is not the light of speculation. If nothing worked well of which the theory was not perfectly understood, we should be in sad confusion. The relations of labour and capital, we are told, are not understood, yet trade and commerce, on the whole, work satisfactorily. I quote from the Times of only the other day. But thoughts like these, as I have often pointed out, are thoroughly British thoughts, and we have been familiar with them for years. Or. If we want more of a philosophy of the matter than this, our free-trade friends have two axioms for us, axioms laid down by their justly esteemed doctors, which they think ought to satisfy us entirely. One is that, other things being equal, the more population increases, the more does production increase, to keep pace with it, because men, by their numbers and contact, call forth all manner of activities and resources in one another and in nature, which, when men are few and sparse, are never developed. The other is that, Although population always tends to equal the means of subsistence, yet people's notions of what subsistence is enlarge as civilization advances, and take in a number of things beyond the bare necessaries of life, and thus therefore is supplied whatever check on population is needed. But the error of our friends is just perhaps that they apply axioms of this sort as if they were self-acting laws which will put themselves into operation without trouble or planning on our part if we will only pursue free trade, business, and population zealously and staunchly, whereas the real truth is that, however the case might be under other circumstances, yet in fact, as we now manage the matter, the enlarged conception of what is included in subsistence does not operate to prevent the bringing into the world of numbers of people who but just attain to the barest necessaries of life, or who even fail to attain to them, while again, though production may increase as population increases yet it seems that the production may be of such a kind, and so related, or rather non-related, to population, that the population may be little the better for it. For instance, with the increase of population since Queen Elizabeth's time, the production of silk stockings has wonderfully increased, and silk stockings have become much cheaper and procurable, in much greater abundance by many more people, and tend perhaps, as population and manufactures increase, to get cheaper and cheaper. And at last to become, according to Bastiat's favourite image, a common free property of the human race, like light and air. But bread and bacon have not become much cheaper with the increase of population since Queen Elizabeth's time, nor procurable in much greater abundance by many more people. Neither do they seem at all to promise to become, like light and air, a common free property of the human race. And if bread and bacon have not kept pace with our population, and we have many more people in want of them now than in Queen Elizabeth's time, It seems vain to tell us that silk stockings have kept pace with our population, or even more than kept pace with it, and that we are to get our comfort out of that. In short, it turns out that our pursuit of free trade, as of so many other things, has been too mechanical. We fix upon some object which, in this case, is the production of wealth, and the increase of manufactures, population and commerce through free trade, as a kind of one thing needful, or end in itself, and then we pursue it staunchly and mechanically and say that it is our duty to pursue it staunchly and mechanically, not to see how it is related to the whole intelligible law of things, and to full human perfection, or to treat it as the piece of machinery, of varying value, as its relations to the intelligible law of things vary, which it really is. So it is of no use to say to the times, and to our liberal friends rejoicing in the possession of their talisman of free trade, that about one in nineteen of our population is a pauper, and that this being so trade and commerce can hardly be said to prove by their satisfactory working that it matters nothing whether the relations between labour and capital are understood or not nay that we can hardly be said not to be in sad confusion for here comes in our faith in the staunch mechanical pursuit of a fixed object and covers itself with that imposing and colossal necessitarianism of the times which we have before noticed and this necessitarianism taking for granted that an increase in trade and population is a good in itself one of the chiefest of goods tells us that disturbances of human happiness caused by ebbs and flows in the tide of trade and business which on the whole steadily mounts are inevitable and not to be quarrelled with this firm philosophy i seek to call to mind when i am in the east of london whither my avocations often lead me and indeed to fortify myself against the depressing sights which on these occasions assail us i have transcribed from the times one strain of this kind full of the finest economical doctrine and always carry it about with me the passage is this the east end is the most commercial the most industrial the most fluctuating region of the metropolis it is always the first to suffer for it is the creature of prosperity and falls to the ground the instant there is no wind to bear it up the whole of that region is covered with huge docks shipyards manufactories and a wilderness of small houses All full of life and happiness in brisk times, but in dull times, withered and lifeless, like the deserts we read of in the East. Now their brief spring is over. There is no one to blame for this, it is the result of nature's simplest laws. We must all agree that it is impossible that anything can be firmer than this, or show a surer faith in the working of free trade, as our liberal friends understand and employ it. But if we still at all doubt whether the indefinite multiplication of manufactories and small houses can be such an absolute good in itself, as to counterbalance the indefinite multiplication of poor people. We shall learn that this multiplication of poor people, too, is an absolute good in itself, and the result of divine and beautiful laws. This is indeed a favourite thesis with our Philistine friends, and I have already noticed the pride and gratitude with which they receive certain articles in the Times, dilating in thankful and solemn language on the majestic growth of our population but i prefer to quote now on this topic the words of an ingenious young scotch writer mr robert buchanan because he invests with so much imagination and poetry this current idea of the blessed and even divine character which the multiplying of population is supposed in itself to have we move to multiplicity says mr robert buchanan if there is one quality which seems god's and his exclusively it seems that divine philoprogenitiveness that passionate love of distribution and expansion into living forms, every animal added seems a new ecstasy to the maker, every life added a new embodiment of his love. He would swarm the earth with beings. they are never enough life, 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 faces gleaming, hearts beating, must fill every cranny, not a corner is suffered to remain empty. The whole earth breeds, and God glories. It is a little unjust, perhaps. To attribute to the divinity exclusively this philoprogenitiveness which the british philistine and the poorer class of irish may certainly claim to share with him yet how inspiriting is here the whole strain of thought and these beautiful words too i carry about with me in the east of london and often read them there they are quite in agreement with the popular language one is accustomed to hear about children and large families which describes children as sent and a line of poetry which mr robert buchanan throws in presently after the poetical prose i have quoted tis the old story of the fig-leaf time this fine line too naturally connects itself when one is in the east of london with the idea of god's desire to swarm the earth with beings because the swarming of the earth with beings does indeed in the east of london so seem to revive the old story of the fig-leaf time such a number of the people one meets there having hardly a rag to cover them, and the more the swarming goes on, the more it promises to revive this old story. And when the story is perfectly revived, the swarming quite completed, and every cranny choke-full, then too, no doubt, the faces in the east of London will be gleaming faces, which Mr. Robert Buchanan says it is God's desire they should be, and which every one must perceive they are not at present, but, on the contrary, very miserable but to prevent all this philosophy and poetry from quite running away with us and making us think with the times and our practical liberal free traders and the british philistines generally that the increase of small houses and manufactories or the increase of population are absolute goods in themselves to be mechanically pursued and to be worshipped like fetishes to prevent this we have got that notion of ours immovably fixed of which i have long ago spoken the notion that culture or the study of perfection leads us to conceive of no perfection as being real which is not a general perfection embracing all our fellow men with whom we have to do such is the sympathy which binds humanity together that we are indeed as our religion says members of one body and if one member suffer all the members suffer with it individual perfection is impossible so long as the rest of mankind are not perfected along with us the multitude of the wise is the welfare of the world says the wise man and to this effect that excellent and often quoted guide of ours bishop wilson has some striking words it is not says he so much our neighbour's interest as our own that we love him and again he says our salvation does in some measure depend upon that of others and the author of the imitation puts the same thing admirably when he says obscurio etiam via ad celem videbato quando tam pauci regnum ceilorum quirere curabant the fewer there are who follow the way to perfection the harder that way is to find so all our fellow men in the east of london and elsewhere we must take along with us in the progress towards perfection if we ourselves really as we profess want to be perfect and we must not let the worship of any fetish any machinery such as manufactures or population which are not like perfection absolute goods in themselves though we think them so create for us such a multitude of miserable sunken and ignorant human beings, that to carry them all along with us is impossible, and perforce they must for the most part be left by us in their degradation and wretchedness. But evidently the conception of free trade, on which our liberal friends vaunt themselves, and in which they think they have found the secret of national prosperity. Evidently, I say, the mere unfettered pursuit of the production of wealth, and the mere mechanical multiplying for this end of manufactures and population, threatens to create for us, if it has not created already those vast miserable unmanageable masses of sunken people one pauper at the present moment for every nineteen of us to the existence of which we are as we have seen absolutely forbidden to reconcile ourselves in spite of all that the philosophy of the times and the poetry of mr robert buchanan may say to persuade us and though hebraism following its best and highest instinct identical as we have seen with that of hellenism in its final aim the aim of perfection teaches us this very clearly, and though from Hebraising counsellors, the Bible, Bishop Wilson, the author of the Imitation, I have preferred, as well I may, for from this rock of Hebraism we are all hewn, to draw the text which we use to bring home to our minds this teaching, yet Hebraism seems powerless, almost as powerless as our free-trading liberal friends, to deal efficaciously with our ever-accumulating masses of pauperism, and to prevent their accumulating still more. Hebraism builds churches, indeed, for these masses, and sends missionaries among them. Above all, it sets itself against the social necessitarianism of the times, and refuses to accept their degradation as inevitable. But with regard to their ever-increasing accumulation, it seems to be led to the very same conclusions, though from a point of view of its own, as our free-trading liberal friends. Hebraism, with that mechanical and misleading use of the letter of Scripture, on which we have already commented is governed by such texts as be fruitful and multiply the edict of god's law as mr chambers would say or by the declaration of what he would call god's words in the psalms that the man who has a great number of children is thereby made happy and in conjunction with such texts as these it is apt to place another text the poor shall never cease out of the land thus hebraism is conducted to nearly the same notion as the popular mind and as mr robert buchanan that children are sent and that the divine nature takes a delight in swarming the east end of london with paupers only when they are perishing in their helplessness and wretchedness it asserts the christian duty of succouring them instead of saying like the times now their brief spring is over there is nobody to blame for this it is the result of nature's simplest laws but like the times hebraism despairs of any help from knowledge and says that what is wanted is not the light of speculation i remember only the other day a good man, looking with me upon a multitude of children, who were gathered before us in one of the most miserable regions of London, children eaten up with disease, half-sized, half-fed, half-clothed, neglected by their parents, without health, without home, without hope, said to me, the one thing really needful is to teach these little ones to succour one another, if only with a cup of cold water, but now from one end of the country to the other one hears nothing but the cry for knowledge, knowledge, knowledge! And yet surely, so long as these children are there in these festering masses, without health, without home, without hope, and so long as their multitude is perpetually swelling, charged with misery, they must still be for themselves, charged with misery they must still be for us, whether they help one another with a cup of cold water or no, and the knowledge how to prevent their accumulating is necessary, even to give their moral life and growth a fair chance. May we not therefore say that neither the true Hebraism of this good man, willing to spend and be spent for these sunken multitudes, nor what I may call the spurious Hebraism of our free-trading liberal friends, mechanically worshipping their fetish of the production of wealth, and of the increase of manufactures and population, and looking neither to the right nor left, so long as this increase goes on, avail us much here, and that here, again, what we want is Hellenism, the letting our consciousness play freely and simply upon the facts before us, and listening to what it tells us, of the intelligible law of things as concerns them. And surely what it tells us is that a man's children are not really sent any more than the pictures upon his wall, or the horses in his stable are sent, and that to bring people into the world, when one cannot afford to keep them and oneself decently, and not too precariously, or to bring more of them into the world than one can afford to keep thus, is, whatever the times and Mr. Robert Buchanan may say, by no means an accomplishment of the divine will, or a fulfilment of nature's simplest laws, but is just as wrong, just as contrary to reason and the will of God, as for a man to have horses or carriages or pictures, when he cannot afford them, or to have more of them than he can afford, and that in the one case as in the other, the larger the scale on which the violation of reason's laws is practised, and the longer it is persisted in, the greater must be the confusion and final trouble. Surely no laudations of free trade, no meetings of bishops and clergy in the east end of london no reading of papers and reports can tell us anything about our social condition which it more concerns us to know than that and not only to know but habitually to have the knowledge present and to act upon it as one acts upon the knowledge that water wets and fire burns and not only the sunken populace of our great cities are concerned to know it and the pauper twentieth of our population we philistines of the middle class too are concerned to know it and all who have to set themselves to make progress in perfection, End of Chapter Six, Part Two.